Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. Jeremy, and I serve as a campus pastor at the Mawa campus, uh, about 25 minutes away, so I'm glad to see you all again and be here. So I just want to share with you um, a little story. Uh, so when my son, I have a six-year-old son, he's, he's in the back over there right now wreaking havoc or asking too many questions. Uh, it's actually funny. He drew a picture of... Uh, Abraham and, and, and Isaac on the mountain, like during, this, during that whole episode, and I was like, ah, okay, anyway, we won't get into that. But, um, so when my son started preschool, we were opened up to this whole new world of kids' birthday parties. How many of you guys remember that, kids' birthday parties? This whole thing of kids' birthday parties. And I remember going to a party as a kid um, way back then, it was very simple. Now, this is not my party. I couldn't find my pictures because my parents live in Pennsylvania, so I couldn't, couldn't get, get, get that. But um, back in the day when you would have birthday parties with your kids or with your nieces or nephews, it was very simple, right? It was so simple. It was so easy. You just invite kids over to your house. You'd play video games. You'd have pizza and cake and maybe a piñata. And the whole thing would just be a piece of cake. It would be so easy. But then over time, all these fancy birthday places opened up, right? So you know that all these places popped up, and they had inflatables and trampolines and laser tag and arcades and, and all these things. And, and they, they were able to do all these things. And, and they were more expensive, but they took care of all the, the details to create this experience. So... When my son was th turning three, my wife and I thought, like, you know what, how about instead of having a party elsewhere at one of these birthday party places, we can make an epic party at our house that would rival any party in any of these places. And uh, boy, what did we get ourselves into? <laughs> so we had this big idea. We had this big vision of having this train theme party because three-year-old boys were into trains, right? So, so we had this idea, and we even came up the slogan for the invitations. It was called, Choo Choo, Come With Me, I'm Turning Three. And as we started planning for this party, we quickly learned that we had taken on more than what we could handle, Right? It started to escalate very, very quickly. And since it was my parents' house, we thought, oh, we can just, there's plenty of space, we'll just keep inviting. So the guest list kept growing and growing. And we started adding all these things like tents. So we got a tent outside and different types of food, outdoor games. I got these indoor tunnels that kids can, can go through. And then we, I even got like this indoor ball pit with like hundreds of balls. We did that. We got bubbles, sidewalk chalk, balloons. We, we made our own gifts bags, and we just kept growing. We threw everything in, including the kitchen sink. And at the end of it, we were so exhausted after all these sleepless nights preparing for this. We said, okay, we will never do this again. This, was, this is insane. Then a couple years later, 
the pandemic hit, and then we were relieved because we couldn't have in-person birthday parties or anything like that, uh, and everything switched to Zoom. <clears throat> in fact, I threw a, a, a Zoom 40th birthday party for my wife, and I, and I tried to do it the best that I could. But although you have this big vision and this big idea and this concept, whenever you try to create a virtual experience for something that is meant to be experienced in person, you know it's not the same, right? It doesn't always translate. You can't just make a concept come to reality. And no matter how hard you try, it can never do justice. Just like a birthday party, you can't have the same experience, the same sounds and the laughter and, and the hugs and the smell of the food and the cake and, and blowing out the candles and singing and the experience. No matter how hard you try, a concept or idea cannot be fully understood until it actually becomes a physical reality. Now, over the last several Weeks, we've been in this sermon series called More Than What You Think. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at key, key words in Scripture in light of their Greek or Hebrew meanings. Now, their meanings in Greek or Hebrew give a greater depth and a greater dimension in understanding what these words are. And today, well, we're going to be looking at the Greek word called logos, the Greek word logos. And what we're going to see is, is how this understanding this word helps us understand how the concept of the divine expresses itself in our reality, in our tangible reality, and, and what that means for us. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Verse 1. I'll read it. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse 10. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. They are reborn not with a physical birth that results from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So as we look into this Gospel of John, just to give you a little bit of background of John, we know John is one of the four Gospels. And the first three books, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels because they are written in a similar manner and they are parallel to one another. Matthew was, was written to the Jewish audience showing Jesus as, as the King, the King Messiah. Mark was written to a Gentile audience showing Jesus as 
the divine servant, as a servant. Luke was written to the Gentile audience as well, emphasizing Jesus as the son of man, Jesus also being fully human. And then we have John. What makes John's gospel different? The gospel of John was was written by John, Jesus' disciple, and was the last gospel written, and it was written primarily to convince the audience that Jesus was divine, that he was the son of God. This book was written to prove that, that Jesus was not just another religious teacher or just another religious prophet. So we have Jesus as king in Matthew, Jesus as a servant in Mark, Jesus as also fully man in Luke, and in John, Jesus being fully God. And I've heard it best described in in a commentary as uh, the four Gospels are kind of like, how many musicians do we have out there? Kind of like a four-part harmony. They all show different sides of Jesus, but they all come together in in a very powerful way. So, in order to prove that Jesus was God himself, he was making that argument, he, had, he started with this amazing, amazing introduction in which he refers to Christ, the person of Christ, as the Word, the capital W, the Word. And in Greek, the term used for the Word is logos. In the beginning, there was the logos. So what does this term really mean? Now, it's amazing. If you study different languages, or if you are a native speaker of a different language, anyone here have another language besides English that they can speak well or a little bit understand? So if you can understand a different language, you realize that there are ideas and concepts and expressions that don't translate easily between uh, a certain language and English. And this could be because there's a different vocabulary, there's a different culture, there's a different worldview surrounding it. According to an author, Leonard Sweet, the word logos is one of those untranslatable words from Greek. It's so difficult to translate. It's, it's almost impossible to translate because its meaning is so different and so deep and so complex that in the English language, we fully can't translate that word, its essence in our language. No English definition can do justice, but in English, if we were to try, logos simplistically means a word, a thought, a a divine reasoning, or a principle that's out there. Now, the original idea for this word logos came from uh, a Greek philosopher, uh, Heraclides, who claimed that in the universe there was a reasoning power in humans that was beyond themselves. Then Philo of (coughs) Alexander, a first century Jewish philosopher, taught that the concept of logos was this idea of there being an intermediary between God and the cosmos, being an agent of creation and an agent through which humanity can comprehend who God was. Logos was a concept that was something both in the world but also 
transcendent of the world. So how does this understanding help us understand why? why, why how, what does this understanding of the word help us understand why John used this term to describe Jesus, calling him the Logos? You see, throughout history, humanity has always believed in something larger than themselves, or bigger than themselves. There was always this belief that there had to be a creator out there that spoke the world into creation. Likewise, humanity had this divine need to understand creation, to understand our own existence, to understand why we're here and, and what's out there and who made all this. This is like a divine thing that's, that's innate and part of humanity. Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, he makes this connection by referring to Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. But John's purpose was to define Jesus more than just in the term of the small Jewish culture that was there, but John was trying to define Jesus to the larger Roman and Greek cultural world that pervaded society at that time. And the word logos was one of the best words to contextualize who Jesus was, bridging the gap between God and creation. What John was saying was that Jesus, this person of Jesus, Jesus was God in the flesh The Logos. Jesus was there in creation, and he is also now with us. And the understanding of this this word, Logos, when it designates the word, it's not designating the word as some kind of concept, but it's actually talking about a word that is spoken, spoken audibly into reality. For example, when God spoke, The world came into existence through his voice. The Gospels of Jesus also served to speak the narrative, the explanations, the message of who Christ is, the Logos of God. So we see Jesus is a Logos of God, a cosmic and spiritual reality of the universe that is manifesting in our present reality through the person of Christ. So what does this passage tell us about that? What does this passage tell us about Jesus being the Logos? First, the first thing we see is that Jesus is the God that pre-existed time. Jesus is the God that pre-existed time. It says in verse 1, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. And if you notice, when you read John, this very closely parallels the Genesis account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So although Jesus was fully human, he was also fully God. He was not a created being. And he existed before his virgin birth. Most other ancient gods and idols of that time all had a creation story where they came into being or or something happened for them to to be born. But Jesus pre-existed. He was 
not a created being. So Jesus is the God that pre-existed time. And second, Jesus is God, the creator. Jesus is God, the creator. Verse 3, God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. Genesis, if we go back to Genesis, Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. You see, it is only God that can create ex nihilo. It's only God that can create, that means out of nothing, to make something out of nothing. And Jesus was the creator as a person of the Trinity during the creation account. So if he is the only one that, that is a creator of life, life can only come from him. And he is the only one that can fix life. We can't find that in, in any other place. So Jesus is a God that preexisted time. Jesus is God, the creator. And third, as a logos, Jesus is the giver of life. Verse four. The word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse 12. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. When sin and evil came into the world, it broke the relationship between God and man. And Jesus came to be the first born so that people through him can become the children of God again. Humanity can't do this in any other way. Humanity can't do this on their own, but, but, but we need a rebirth. We need to be reborn through a spiritual birth. And this is only through Jesus. Why? Because he was the creator of life in the first place. We can't find that rebirth through someone else or somewhere else. Verse 14 is one of the most profound truths of our beliefs. If you have a pen or highlight or highlight that in your Bible, it's one of the most important truths of our beliefs that the word, the logos, became human flesh. This this profound truth separates our faith from everything else that the God of the universe would become Flesh incarnate, the Logos becoming flesh. You see, Jesus is the intersection point, the gateway between 
God and humanity. It is, he is the point in which heaven touch, touches down and interact, can interact with us in our life. So now that he, he has broken through to our reality, what does that mean for us? What is this logos as it is revealed to us in our reality? What does that mean? How many of you here have ever played sports as a kid in maybe like your town sports, like elementary school? Not like the serious stuff, but like the town leagues that they have. I remember when I was a kid, I was in the town um, Little League. And that's not my picture either, because my pictures are in Pennsylvania. So I had to find uh, another picture. I will be paying royalties to all these kids if they're, if they're still around. They might be older than me now. But I remember when I was a kid in elementary school, town sports was so much fun, right? It was so much fun. There was no pressure. We had fun. We just kind of gave our best effort. We took it seriously, but, but not too seriously. And at the end, everybody got a trophy. Even if you couldn't hit or, or missed, or if you couldn't throw, uh, you know how it is with, with little kids, you know, baseball. You know, they're, 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 they're throwing the ball to the other team member, and, like, both teams are confused. They don't even know who's on their team. And, and, and when the ball goes into the field, no matter what team you're on, you all, it's like football. It's actually more like watching football. Everyone goes and runs to grab the ball, and they tackle each other. So it was so much fun. And also, I remember everybody gets to play. You get to play no matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter. Everyone gets to play on that team. So I had a great time playing elementary school baseball. Then in junior high, I didn't play baseball for two years because I didn't make the team. And somehow, through some miraculous act of God, somehow when I got to ninth grade, I somehow made the freshman baseball team I don't know how to this day. I think it might be the, the two people ahead of me, they decided to last minute go play lacrosse or switch their teams. So somehow some opening came up and then my name was pushed up to the top. So when I went there, um, I, you know, I got to this, this team and since I had missed out on junior high baseball for two years, I, was, I, I came there kind of expecting, I was there with this laid-back attitude that I had in elementary school, expecting that to be kind of like, you know, the same thing in high school. But boy, was I wrong. When I got to the team, during the first practice, the coach gave us the death talk. You know what I'm talking about? He gave us the death talk right away. And he made it clear that if we wanted to be on this team, we made the team, that's great. But he made it clear that there were some clear choices that we were going to have to make if we wanted to stay. Or we would have to walk off. Some of the things he said were like, okay, you can never miss a practice. You know, in elementary school, I think I, I missed like the majority of the practice and just show up to the games. You can never miss a practice. You always had to show up on time. You always had to listen to the coach. You always had to give 110%. 
And you have to be okay with the fact that not everyone is going to play. In fact, I didn't play the entire year. I batted once. I had to be okay with that. And you had to be okay with the fact that, that there were no consolation prizes. No, not everyone was going to get a trophy or anything like that. And I was thinking, whoa, this, was not, this is not what I had signed up for. This is totally different. And it was a real reality check. And it revealed all of my inner emotions. And I came face to face to a place where I had to make a real decision about what I was going to do because it was going to affect my Reality. You know, I think this is the same attitude that we sometimes approach God with. We want all his blessings. We want all his benefits. But we want them on our own conditions. You know, but it doesn't work that way. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12? For the word of God is alive and powerful, the logos of God. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between the soul and the spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. The philosopher Heraclitus explained that the word logos, in trying to explain it, could be like this concept of taking two sticks and putting them together so that they could either be made into a bow and arrow or flip it over and it could be like uh, an ancient harp. There are two things that, that can become a third thing that has the power to either kill or the power to either soothe or heal. And the author in Hebrews is use the word logos to describe Jesus' word coming to life in our reality in a way that, much, that might be much different than what we could ever imagine. Maybe when we picture the words of, of Jesus, we just think of you know, words of love and words of compassion and words of acceptance, and, and it's easygoing. We don't want to ruffle the feathers. But Jesus' reality in our life is so much deeper and so much more than that. His words are like a two-edged sword. You know, a two-edged sword can can have impact from from both ways, and and it can cut to the deeper areas of the heart with truth. His word brings you to a place where we are forced to make a choice between his way that brings life or not his way. That leads to a place of consequences and death. It, it brings together two opposites. The power to bring life in the face of death. To see Jesus and see hope. Or to walk away with skepticism. To see Jesus and, and accept joy. Or face dejection. To experience love. Or to walk away. What are some of these teachings or the realities of Jesus in our life? For example, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, 
and the burden I give you is light. For those who are tired and have heavy burdens, do we believe that we can trade in our yoke with his new yoke that is easy to bear and that is light? Do we believe that if we surrender, he will do that? Do we trust him in that? Or are we trying to hold on to maintain control over the burdens that we have that we are carrying? We all have burdens, but the question is, whose burdens are you carrying? When we come face to face with this truth and this reality, are we willing to step into it? Another one, Mark 8, 34. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Jesus saying that in order to really live, you must be willing to die of yourself. You must be willing to give up of your own life in order to gain his life. Now this is a paradox. But when Jesus enters into our reality as a Logos, we have to be willing to ask ourselves these questions. Are we willing to give up our dreams and desires and our aspirations that are not of God in order to say yes to him and follow him, even if he takes us to a place of suffering or place that we did not expect to go? Do we trust that if we follow him, our creator, and if he is the giver of life, that he will finally lead us to a place where we will be truly alive and fulfilled? And that makes no sense in worldly wisdom, but this is a heavenly principle. Next, Matthew 23, 11 to 12. The greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. How many of us, when we see this teaching of Jesus, how many of us are, are willing to humble ourselves in a world that celebrates pride and achievement and self-preservation and self-promotion? How many of us are willing to become like a servant, just like Christ was, so that we serve and we honor and lift up others? Now, this goes against everything that our world stands for. This is an otherworldly teaching. This is the logos of God becoming reality in our lives. What about Matthew 5, 3 to 5? God blesses those who are poor and realizes their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Think about all of the beatitudes of Jesus. Each one is almost the opposite of what we would believe in our own human understanding and in our own human expectation. Or what about the people who Jesus came for? Luke 5.32, I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who, who know they are sinners and need to repent. 
In the eyes of many religions, it's oftentimes those who appear the best or most religious on the outside would be the ones who you would think would be most likely to achieve salvation. But in the kingdom of God, salvation is for those who are repentant, for those who are sinners, for those who are broken, for those like you and me who need help. Are we willing to lay down our pride Are we willing to admit what's going on in the inner, deeper areas of our heart and of our soul, of areas where where we have sin? Are we willing to allow the logos and the reality of Jesus become reality in those deeper areas for us to know that we are sinners and that we are in need of a Savior? Not just for eternity, but even for now. Or how about this? Jesus said, love your enemies. How's that reality? She said, love your enemies. He said, forgive someone 70 times 7. Just let that one just sit in your soul. This is the reality of Jesus in our lives. You see, the words of Jesus creates tension. Just like a bow or a harp or a double-edged sword, they bring us to a place where we either have to accept his life or when we don't and we have death. They cause us to follow or they cause us to walk away. Each of these teachings brings us to a place of our understanding where we understand who God is. And gives us a stepping point to enter into a new relationship with him. In the end, I did end up staying on that baseball team. I didn't want to. But it stretched me more than I could ever imagine. It gave me a new insight. It gave me a new appreciation of what that reality fully meant being on a baseball team and what I was being asked to do and, and the reality I, was, I, was, I had to come face to face with. And I think the same thing is true with Christ. When we allow his reality to be made present in our life, we have to come face to face with his word and the realities of the things that he's asking us to do even though they're so different from what the world expects of us. How do we know as believers if we are truly transformed for allowing this logos to be expressed in us? We have to be honest with ourselves and we need to ask ourselves these questions every day. Am I taking up his yoke? Am I taking up his burden which is light am I willing to become a servant am I willing to put myself last so others can be first am I willing to love my enemies am I willing to forgive someone 70 times 7 
Am I willing to have integrity in my heart and be honest about my sin issues and what's going on in the deeper place? Do I desire a savior in my present and not just in my future? These are the questions as believers we need to constantly be asking ourselves and stepping into. I want to invite you to stand as we close. I want you to just think about some of these things that we talked about today. You know, Jesus doesn't want to just settle with us being saved and just moving on with our life. He wants to see the full expression of his kingdom and of his life expressed through us fully changed, fully sanctified. And we know we can only experience a full reality of who you are, Jesus, by saying yes to you. Jesus, you are the Logos. You are the one that spoke the universe into creation. You are the one that has the power to speak life into us. Jesus said, in order to know God, we must be willing to respond to him, even if his teachings contradict what the world had tried to instill us. But here is his promise. Jesus has come to destroy the power of sin and death in us so that we can experience his life, his eternal life. And when we respond to him, to his word, to his life, we become transformed into who he's created us to be. We experience the life that he has come to give us. So with that, let's just worship together and allow his Holy Spirit and his presence to speak to us in how he is transforming us and in how we are allowing his life to overcome us. It was great having you with us today. We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.org.